you get up. That'd be a nice gesture. And uh, yeah, there we go. There we go. That's working out now. That's great. Good deal. If you have your Bibles, uh, why don't you turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. If you're here for the first time, we are going through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. If, you're, if, uh, if you can find Psalms, that's good. Go to your left. If you're in Genesis, go to your right. And you, you'll eventually come across, um, you'll come across Nehemiah. Uh, many years ago, Samuel Ward made this statement. Samuel Ward said, to live well is to live twice. There's a lot of wisdom there. To live well is to live twice. When you live well, you get more out of life. Now, the question is, how do you live well? I think the answer is, we live well when we live by wisdom. Uh, if there's one thing we all have in common here tonight, it's this. Every guy in this room, every single one of us, I don't care if you're 16, I don't care if you're 60, I don't care if you're 96. Every guy in this room, what we all need is, we all need wisdom. What we're facing in our lives right now um, it's all different. It's all, uh, uh, it, it all would fit different categories. It's all over the map. Some of us are struggling in a relationship. Some of us are struggling in a business. Some of us in a marriage. Some of us, it could be 100,000 different things. But what we all need is wisdom. Are you in Nehemiah too? Then flip over to Psalm 90. Because in Psalm 90, Moses made a great statement. We tend not to think of Moses when we think of the Psalms. But in, in Psalm 90, uh, Moses nails it. I mean, he nails it when he talks about our lives and what our lives are like. Um, he says this in verse 10. He says, as for the days of our lives, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we fly away. Life is moving at an unbelievably fast clip. It's remarkable. It's like our lives, uh, it's like our lives are, are a, a VCR. We're not hitting play, we're on fast forward. We're moving, at that, we're moving at that clip. That's how fast life is moving now for us. It's amazing. Uh, we're at different spots here in life, just looking around. We got, we've got guys that are in their 20s. We've got guys in their 30s, 40s, 50s, all the way around. Doesn't matter where you are in life, verse 10 applies to you. He says, so teach us to number our days that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom. Wherever you are in life, you need wisdom. Uh, are you 47? You've never been 47 before, have you? This is your first time to be 47. This is your first time to, to face these particular a set of circumstances that are on the table in your life right now. So what do you need? You need wisdom. Are you 28? What do you need? Yeah, well, you need wisdom. <clears throat> are, are you 62? What do you need? You've never been 62 before. You've been 42. See, if you could go back and be 42, you'd do all right. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, right? <laughs> I tell you what, you'd be darn good being 42 the second time around. Right? Because you learned the first time. 
But see, you can't go back and be 42. You're 62, and you're 62 once and once only. So what do you need? You need wisdom. We all need wisdom. To live well is to live twice. It's when we live well that, that we experience the abundant life. And where does the abundant life come from? Well, it comes from wisdom. It comes from knowing Christ. Um, interestingly enough, see, when you talk about living well and you talk about wisdom, wisdom, you've got to have wisdom to live well. Well, where does wisdom come from? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, we, we live in a culture, and we're all aware of it, we live in a culture that's lost its mind. We live in a culture where wisdom has gone out the window. We live in a culture where people don't live well. In terms of, when I, when I say that, we, we live uh, abundantly, and we have a lot of prosperity, but that doesn't mean that we live well. Because so many are living with a lot of stuff, but they're not living with wisdom, you see. That's why their lives are empty, even with all the stuff. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, what's wisdom? Uh, you know what wisdom is? Wisdom is, uh, another term for wisdom is common sense. That, that's, uh, years ago, uh, you'd hear, or even, even today, you'll hear someone talk about somebody, and they'll say, you know, well, that person has just a lot of good common sense. What's common sense? It's wisdom. Well, where does wisdom come from? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Our courts used to have wisdom. They tend not to now. Uh, I was reading this week about this guy in New York who had a guy break into his house. And he saw this guy going into the bedroom of his two children. This guy pulls out a gun. He had just moved from Florida to New York. The gun was registered in New York. Uh, but he hadn't registered in New York yet. This guy is going in to, to his children's bedroom. He confronts the guy. The guy starts screaming at him, comes at him, and he shoots the guy. So guess who they want to put in jail? Is that not unbelievable? I, I don't know much about that DA, but I'll tell you this. He's a liberal because he's an idiot. Now, you think I'm talking political here. I'm not. I didn't say liberal Democrat. I could have, but I didn't. I restrained myself. <laughs> but have you noticed that liberal Republicans are just as stupid as liberal Democrats? Amen. You see? And what I mean by that is, and, and here's how I would define that. Uh, I define a liberal as someone who has no fear of the Lord. You see? They're on the wrong issue of, every, they're on the wrong issue of everything because they have no fear of God. So some guy's coming in, and he's going to assault two little kids, and a father stands up and protects his children? Well, let's throw that father in jail. Because he didn't have that gun registered in New York. Unbelievable. And we could go on and on and on and on and on and on. We're amazed by what we see. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you go through Proverbs 14 times, it'll talk about the fear of the Lord. All the benefits that come from, from, from the fear of the Lord, from knowing the Lord. Common sense comes from knowing the Lord. Um, Nehemiah was a man uh, who was a great leader. Some of you are not familiar with Nehemiah. This is your first exposure to him. Uh, I, I think Nehemiah is a guy 
that really demonstrates what leadership should be. Because Nehemiah was a man who lived well. He lived well. Uh, Nehemiah lived with wisdom. Nehemiah knew what it was to, uh, to have the fear of the Lord. When we talk about the fear of the Lord, we're not talking about a, a terror or that God's always going to get you. It just, it, it just means that we know that God, who God is. We know his power. We know his majesty. We know his omnipotence. We know, that he, we know that he's everywhere. We know that he tells us what is right. He tells us what's wrong. He's a God of justice. He's a God of mercy. Uh, he's a God who has given us his word. He, he's our creator. He's our father. He tells us how we should live. And it's just smart to listen to him. It's just, it's just wise to do it his way. And you know, most of us, when we're young, we think we know a better way. So we got to go out, and we got to do stupid things, and we got to get beat up, and, and we go right around this room. Guys could tell story after story after story of what we did in our younger years. Because we thought we knew best. And, 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 and you know why you're here on a Wednesday night? Because you know you don't know best. We need to know the Lord, and we need to know his wisdom to be the men that he wants us to be. Well, Nehemiah is a guy that has a lot to, uh, I think, a lot to demonstrate to us. I almost said a lot to teach us. But Nehemiah doesn't so much teach as he does live it. And you kind of watch this guy. And, and as I watch Nehemiah, and as I go through the book, and as you'll see here as we go through this thing, this guy's life just kind of, it, it just kind of, uh, emanates wisdom. He, he, he had a sense about it. He had a common sense. Uh, he wasn't confused um, because he started with the fear of the Lord. Now, let's read this in, in Nehemiah 2 because um, he's in a crisis and he needs wisdom. So I want to read uh, the, this section of Scripture. I'm just going to read it. Then we're going to go back and we're going to we're going, to pull some, we're going to pull some stuff out of, out of this passage, out of this guy's life and how he handles this chapter in his life because he's about to embark on a new chapter here. In, um, and if I could get to Nehemiah, I'd be happy to read it to you. It, uh, yeah, you go to Psalms and then you go to the left and then, okay, good. Yeah, right. I just need a GPS system on here and I'd be fine. We're in, uh, we're in Nehemiah 2, verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river. That would be the Euphrates River. Let me just set you up where this guy is. He's in Persia. He's 800 miles to the east of Jerusalem. This guy is not a Persian. He's a Jew. But he was not born in Jerusalem. He was born in Persia because um, his country was taken over by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians then, in turn, were taken over by the Persians. Uh, he lives in exile. He lives as, a, uh, he lives as an immigrant. He lives as a uh, refugee, if, in a sense, if you will. He's not living in his home country, although he was born in this country. He's a Jew. Um, they were over there. They were taken away by God for 70 years because of their unbelief and because for hundreds of years their leaders did not fear the Lord and their leaders did not live well and their leaders who knew the Lord did not obey the Lord. So finally God had to discipline them. and He was long-suffering and he was patient, but finally, and, and he would deal with them incrementally as he does with us. 
he does something to get our attention, we don't listen. He'll have to come on a little stronger the next time, and then the next time a little stronger. And I see some guys nodding your head because you know what that's like, and I know what that's like. Well, they wouldn't listen, so they wind up going into captivity. But what's happening is God has been gracious, and now they're going back into Jerusalem. A guy named Zerubbabel had gone in before uh, Nehemiah to rebuild the temple. Ezra had gone in, what, 12, 15 years before. He was a priest to teach the people the law. But there was a problem because the walls of Jerusalem were broken down. The security system was down. Uh, the defense system wasn't working. NATO had broken down. They were absolutely, completely, totally vulnerable. Which maybe we've got to do that to France and Germany. <laughs> Wouldn't that be interesting? Say, hey, good, you guys, go for it. And then just say, Saddam, just go on in there and then let's see who they'd be calling next. Uh, no charge for that. I just, I just thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> So now, he's heading to Jerusalem. Real quick, if you haven't been here, he went to the king because it was on his heart. We gotta, Lord, we've got to go back and rebuild those walls. He goes to the king. The king gives him favor to go back. And now, he's on assignment. I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. The king had signed off on this. He could, he could show these, uh, these bureaucrats, hey, the king sent me on this mission. You let me through. i got a green light here. He had an executive order is what he had. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. So we'll note that in a little bit. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Uh, we'll touch on these guys more. But just to tell you real quick, these guys were governors. Uh, Sanballat, his, his the area that he probably governed uh, probably at one time involved Jerusalem. Uh, and you know how bureaucrats are. They don't want to give up anything. They don't want to give up power. And so he was not real pleased that Nehemiah was showing up. Uh, and neither was Tobiah, uh, who was an Ammonite. And we'll talk about him later. We'll get to know these guys pretty well. Verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. So he finally arrives. He's there three days. And I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out by night by the valley gate. Now what he's doing is, here's what he's going to do. He's going he's to, at night, surreptitiously, he's going to go check out the damage. That's what he's going to do. Uh, Jerusalem, if you go to Jerusalem today, there, it's, there's a wall, it's called the Old City, and there's a wall. Uh, and they have all these gates, which were entrances into the city. Well, all these gates, all these walls are broken down. There's no defense. So he's going to check out the damage. He's heard about this from afar, but he's going to go look for himself. So now we're going to hear about the different gates. Verse 13. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and onto the refuse gate. Now what's that? Well, that's where they'd put the trash out. That's where BFI would come and pick up all the stuff. That's where the sewers emptied out. They had a certain gate. Inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate. They had a soda fountain there. That's not what they had. What do you think they had there? They had water. Yeah. 
and they had the king's pool, but there was no plate, place for my mount to pass. Why not? Because the rubble was so great, he couldn't get around it. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate and returned. And uh, now, now, real quick, did you get a little chart? Uh, take a look at your chart, because I'm going to finish reading this. But let's do this now, and then I'll come back to it. The, uh, the bold line is the city of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's time. Uh, if you look at that little, um, you look at that little guide, you'll see the line re which represents the present wall of the old city. Now I've walked around that before, and all around the current wall is a is a two lane highway. Is it two lanes before it's two lanes because it's always congested. Um, so you can still walk around this today. It was much smaller in Nehemiah's time. And what he was doing was just basically rebuilding it. Um, it. It was smaller, but he was getting the walls up to protect the temple. Uh, so by night, what he does is he goes out and he makes a tour. Now what's interesting is, see you get down to the dung gate. You see that on the bottom? You see? And then you get to the fountain gate. We'll see the dung gate uh, is another term for the, uh, for the refuse gate. Uh, then he gets to the fountain gate, and then he starts working his way up to the water gate, and he ran into the burglars there, and then he keeps going on up. Well, see, you get up there to the horse gate, you get up there to the east gate. Now, let me tell you what's interesting about this. Um, there's a lot of history right in here. If you're on that, on that right-hand section where, where the horse gate is, where the great projecting tower is, right there, Tiger Woods, Tiger could hit he could hit a drive that would go across. See, see you, got that, you got that city and you got that wall, and then you got a ravine that goes down into a valley. It's called the uh, Kidron Valley. And then it comes straight up, and you've got the Garden of Gethsemane. So you see, Tiger Wood, could, I mean, he could hit a seven iron over there and hit the Garden of Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives. If he had a driver, he could hit the Mount of Olives. So see, this stuff's real compacted. It's real constricted in here. So... This, which is walled today, was not walled. And uh, it's interesting because when you go there today, they have excavated so far down. Because Jerusalem, you know, these cities in the Middle East, when they do archaeology, they would build on top. So they excav uh, um, They would just start building. So, you know, uh, uh, they would build on what had been there for hundreds of years before. Uh, they wouldn't go, they wouldn't get bulldozers and clean it out. They would just sort of put it all back in shape, and then they keep building. So as they have excavated in Jerusalem, they've actually found rubble from Nehemiah's wall. It's amazing stuff. This is what he was doing. He was scoping it out. All right, now, just to give you a frame of reference, let's go on and read the passage, then we'll come back and we'll pull out principles in this guy's leadership. Verse 16, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor yet had I told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. See, I think to kind of get a, a sense of what this guy was dealing with, it's kind of what we felt like um, at ground zero on, um, on September 11th. You know, I mean, we, we had, I mean, that, that was, we were all stunned. We were shocked at what had happened. 
the, the amount, the, the rubble, the brokenness, the, the fire, the, uh, I mean, were we not stunned? Were we not shocked? That's how these people were. This was their World Trade Center. Uh, we got our deal cleaned up pretty, pretty fast. This had been in ruins for years and years and years and was a source of incredible grief. He says, you see the bad situation we're in. Jerusalem is desolate. Its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And then I told them how the hand of God, of my God, had been favorable to me and also about the king's words, which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Nehemiah was a man of wisdom. We're going to see that. It was General Carl Spatz back in World War II who was referring to one of his fellow officers. And he said this. He said, he's a man who thinks things through very carefully before he goes off half-cocked. Uh, that wasn't Nehemiah. Nehemiah thought things through very carefully, but he didn't go off half-cocked. He thought them through, and then he proceeded with wisdom. With wisdom. You know the great thing about God? He promises to give us wisdom in James 1. If any of you lack wisdom. Mary and I sit down today. We were just, just this morning. And we just, we just, we did this last night. And we did this this morning. Because we need wisdom. You know, we're just working through something. We just need the wisdom of God. And all morning I was saying, how do, you know, how do I figure, how do I, you know. I walked in there and she was reading the paper. I said, Mary, you know, let's just let's sit down, let's pray for a minute. Because you know, this isn't clear to me. Uh, James says, if any of you lack wisdom, that's me. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and without reproach. You ask wisdom, God will give you wisdom. You see? That's a great promise. That's a great truth. You, you don't know how to navigate. You don't know how to navigate what's before you tonight. Lord, I need wisdom. He'll give you the wisdom to do what you need to do tonight. And then when you get up in the morning, you say it all over again. Lord, I don't know what the heck I'm doing here. I need you to lead me. I need you to guide me. You know what he'll do? He'll do it. Now, is he going to lay out for you what you should do for the next six months? Probably not. But he's going to give you what you need for that day. You know? I see wisdom all through this guy, Nehemiah. I see wisdom in his leadership. And I'm going to give you maybe four, maybe five, maybe six. I don't know how many. I don't know how far we'll get tonight. But I want to give you, um, what do I call these? Principles, lessons. Uh, I don't know what to call them. I'm going to give you six points. How's that for not being creative? I'm just going to give you six shots, maybe four, maybe five. Let's just see. But, but you're going to see this guy dripped with wisdom in his life. This guy lived well. The first thing I want you to note is this. He showed wisdom in his entrance. Let me say that again. He showed wisdom in his entrance. Now, Nehemiah was no dummy. He is, he's coming. He was cupbearer to the king. He's in the king's inner circle. He hangs out in the Oval Office. He's got an office just down from the king. He was a trusted advisor. He had access. He had the ear of the king. 
uh, he had authority, he had prominence, and he knew he was going in the turf that was on the outer reaches of, of the kingdom. And you had these bureaucrats out there, you had Sambalat, you had Tobiah, these guys had their little realms, they had their power, they had their network, they had their good old boy thing, they had their ways of doing things, and they didn't like anybody coming in. So he shows wisdom in how he arrives. Note, if you would, um, in verse 9. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Uh, when, he, when he rode into town, it was impressive. He rode in with an entourage. He wrote in, uh, now was he looking for prominence? Was he looking for those guys to say, oh, what a great, no. He just knew how these guys thought. And he knew that he needed to demonstrate that he was not some guy from, uh, from the country. He needed to show that he was a man with authority. He had letters from the king. He's got soldiers. He's got an honorage. I mean, they're coming in. Hey, they're coming in in the limos and the black suburbans. Uh, Jimmy Carter cut me off one night in Portland, Oregon. I was going up the Banfield Freeway. And all of a sudden, I mean, I'm just, I'm driving up in my little Fiat, and all of it, and I'm coming up on this, and here comes this uh, uh, on-ramp, and everything's fine, and all of a sudden, this black limo just, shoo, just about cut me off. I mean, they didn't care. And right behind it was a Suburban, another, and he was, he was in charge. And, and I mean, those guys weren't stopping for anybody. And I remember that Secret Service man who was in the back of the Suburban just looking at me. And he didn't care. He kind of thought it was neat. They just kind of ran me off, you know? Uh, I mean, but there was authority there. It was impressive. Um, in a sense, Nehemiah had to show his credentials and he had to show his authority because he knew those guys, Sambalat and Tobiah, and he was aware of them. He knew who they were. He knew how to approach them, and he knew how to make an impact. So he showed wisdom in his entrance. Let me show you another way he showed wisdom. He showed wisdom in his, in, the, in his interdependence. Let me say that again. He showed wisdom in his inter, I-N-T-E-R, dependence. What's that all about? Um, note verse 12. I arose in the night, I and the few men with me. When I say he was interdependent, here's what I mean by that. Uh, Nehemiah had the wisdom to have a team. He had the wisdom to have a team. Uh, we, we, we love this thing in America about the, the great American self-made man. Uh, and we love John Wayne. Um, but, but, you know, smart men and wise men are interdependent. Smart men and wise men know that they don't have all the gifts. So, let me tell you what a wise man does. I think a wise man is not threatened by men who are better than him. I think a wise man realizes how God has put him together. You know your strengths, and, and you know your weaknesses better than anybody else. You should know your weaknesses better than anybody else. You should be aware of them. Uh, because God built both of them into your life. So. If you're a wise man, you realize, you know what, I probably am not going to do real, real well getting through life all by myself. Uh, I, need, I need some people around me. We were not, it was not good for the man to be alone, was it? 
We'll say, well, that was in the context of marriage. Well, sure it was. But just generally speaking, God did not make us to be independent. God did, God did not make us to live the Christian life by ourselves. God has designed us to be interdependent. Now, some of us are more people, persons than others. But we all, you know what? We all need some people. We all need a team. Wise men are not threatened by people that are more capable than themselves. In fact, wise men look for people who are better equipped in your area of weakness than you are, and you listen to them. And you get as many of them as you can, and you seek them out. Because that's not your area of strength. Does that not make sense? See, that's how you live well. You live wisely. In an abundance of counselors, there's wisdom. So you've got an area you struggle with? Go find somebody who's good there. You know? Uh, you're not good with math? You can't find receipts? Go hire a bookkeeper. I have a bookkeeper who's unbelievable. And here's how I live my life. I have receipts. I'm not, I'm not an organized guy. Uh, you talk to Mary. She'll prove that to you, that I'm, that's not my, but, but you know what I do? I got a system. You know what my system is? I get my receipts, I throw them in a drawer. And they're in a drawer. And then about every three weeks, I take those receipts, I get a big envelope, I put them in the bag, and I go give them to Bev Klein. And I was, the other day I called her and I said, Bev, back in, I think it was February, it might have been January, I rented a car, and I forget where I was. I think it might have been Columbus, Ohio. I was wondering if you could, I got it right here. She already had the receipt. It took her about 30 seconds. I said, you know, Bev, you're slipping. <laughs> you can usually do that in about 15. I'm not, you know what? I'm not good at that. You know what? She's unbelievable. Now, that's just a basic, but see, that's life. You get a team. Wise men are not threatened. They get people around them who are gifted. And, and it doesn't have to be a business relationship. We all need people in our lives. We, we all need people that we can trust. It was Gerhard Frost who once said that the reason mountain climbers are tied together is to keep the sane ones from going home. See, if you're smart, you're not going to attempt Everest by yourself. You need a team. And uh, you, probably need to be, you probably need to be tied in with some people. See, that's just wisdom. I, I, Nehemiah was a phenomenal leader. But uh, as great a leader as he was, with all of his wisdom, with all of his might, and with all of his clout, and with uh, all of his giftedness, uh, he had a few men with him. He had a few men. What kind, what kind of people do you look for on your team? Well, for most of us here, you know what? For almost most guys in this room, your most valuable team member is your wife. Most of us, now some of you guys, that, some of you guys aren't married. And maybe some of you guys, you and your wife are in a tough stretch right now. But for most of us, our wives want us to win. That's a great thing. Does she always see things the way you see them? Of course. No. <laughs> Should she see them that way? Absolutely. But does she? No. Does she tell you? Yes. Why? Because she loves you. She's on your team. Uh, here's the thing. You'd get a team, and, and you know this, see? 
See, the easy thing is to get people that always agree with you and always tell you what you want to hear. That's not going to help you a bit. You need some people who love you enough to tell you the truth. And then, and you know they're on your team. And they, you know, because you got your critics, you got your Sambalats and Tobias that are always on your case. But see, when you got somebody that loves you and has demonstrated that, and they tell you something that's hard, well, gosh, they're not trying to hurt you. They're trying to, they're trying to help you. And see, then it just comes down to being a man and being willing to listen. You see? That's wisdom. That's how you live well. That's how you can avoid some real bad things down the road, is that oftentimes, God, when I hear something, when I hear the same thing, the same counsel from two or three people in a short amount of time, I figure God's trying to get through to me. You know, that's a scriptural principle. Uh, so, so do you have a team and you have jerseys made up with numbers? You don't need that. You need some people in your life that you interact. You're interdependent. That's what I'm talking about. You see? That's a good way to live life. Because there are people that have strengths that you don't have. They have angles of insight you don't have. That's how you live. Well, that's smart. I, you know what I think the enemy loves to do with guys? I think the enemy loves to isolate a man. He isolates him. He gets him out of good, healthy relationships. And then that guy's dead meat. Let me give you another shot on Nehemiah, okay? So far, he showed wisdom in his entrance. He showed wisdom in his interdependence. Here's my next one. He showed wisdom in his reconnaissance. I'm going to spell that for you because I had to look it up. Reconnaissance is R-E-C-O-N-N-A-I-S-S-A-N-C-E. He showed wisdom in his reconnaissance. Um, why, why do I say that? Well, because he didn't do his reconnaissance at 12 noon. He did his reconnaissance at night. Because, you see, what, what he was doing, he, he'd heard, uh, the book starts off in chapter 1, his brother had been to Jerusalem and, and some other guys, and they'd come back to Susa where he is, and they give him a report. So he had heard these reports. But now he's there, he's on site, He's going to go check this out. For, all right, what are we actually dealing with here? Uh, so he's doing his reconnaissance mission. Uh, good leaders want to know the facts. Good leaders don't want spin. Good leaders don't want hype. Good leaders want to know the brutal facts. What are we dealing with here? What are the issues here? You know, you're not interested in living in la-la land. Because you can't afford to live in la-la land. You've got people depending on you. You've got people counting on you. So what are we up against here? I've, uh, I've quoted from this book before, Jim Collins' book, uh, From Good to Great. And in this book, and I've mentioned his reference in here to, uh, uh, to Colonel James Stockdale. And, and most of us know him from when he ran with Perot. And, and quite frankly, when he was on TV, he wasn't all that impressive. That, that wasn't his venue. But, but Stockdale was a remarkably impressive leader in the POW camps in, in, uh, in Vietnam. Uh, he was a man uh, whom those other POWs, who they looked to, 
who they respected. Uh, he helped implement communication systems. He helped come up with a code so they could communicate. He, he put together uh, uh, some uh, principles for those guys when they were being tortured. He laid out some ground rules. When you're tortured this long, then it's okay to say this. If it goes, the torture goes this long, then it's okay to say this. He gave them markers along the way so that they could withstand what they thought they couldn't withstand. Amazing guy. Uh, Collins went out and interviewed Stockdale, and I won't read the whole thing, it'd take too long, but he came up with a thing called the Stockdale Paradox. And here's what it is. Uh, the, Stock, the Stockdale Paradox is this. Retain faith that you will prevail in the end regardless of the difficulties. And at the same time, confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. That's good leadership. Say that again. Retain faith that you will prevail in the end regardless of the, of the difficulties. Now here's how I'd put that. Retain faith that God will sustain you to the end. That's the part that's missing there. That God will give you what you need. Retain faith that God will enable you to endure or to sustain to the end, regardless of the difficulties, and at the same time, confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. They interview him in here, and they ask him, and I, I, I used this illustration a year ago in here. They, uh, Collins asked him, he said, who are the guys that didn't make it? And he said, the optimists didn't make it. He said, the optimist. He said, yeah. The guys are always saying, I'm going to be out of here by Christmas. And guess what? They weren't out of there by Christmas. Oh, I'm going to be out of here by Easter. They weren't out by Easter. Those were the guys that, those were the guys that tended to break. See, we all want to be optimistic. But you know what's better than being optimistic? Is being realistic. You see? You want to be realistic, you've got a God that will give you the strength to go through anything. Uh, so that's where your optimism comes from, okay? So if God chooses to do it by Christmas or Easter or three years from now, God will be faithful and God will sustain me in the interim. That's realism. That's what John Bunyan had. Uh, but at the same time, you confront the most brutal facts. He did his reconnaissance mission because he wanted to know just how bad this thing was. So there's a certain point. He's going to the refuse gate and he's going up to the fountain gate. And, and it's so bad, he can't, there's so much trouble, he can't even get his horse around there. All right, so now he knows what he's dealing with here. That's leadership. So you're in a crisis, get the fact. I saw where they're bringing back Dragnet. Now, I'm going to tell you, I haven't seen it. I don't want to see it because it can't come close to the real thing. Nobody can match Jack Webb. Jack Webb was Jack Webb. Now, what a man. Here's a woman. Her house has been burglarized. It's been, it's been terrorized. It's been, it's been brutalized. It's been arsoned. It's been killed. She's in tears her whole life. Jack Webb walks up to her. She's weeping uncontrollably. He looks her in the eye, and what does he say? With all compassion. He's the original compassionate conservative. He looks her in the eye. Face never changes. He says, just the facts. Well, you want to be compassionate, but you want to know the facts. See, wisdom says, tell me the facts. Tell me the harsh realities. I mentioned John Bunyan. Uh, John Bunyan, 
was, uh, was a tinker. What's a tinker? Well, he, he made pots and pans, and he would fix pots and pans in England in the 1600s. His father was a tinker, so he was a tinker. He came to, he came to know Christ and was gloriously converted, was a powerful preacher. And uh, just too much was happening, so they had to throw this guy in jail. Uh, and and uh, it was very hard for him because he, he loved his family, he loved his children, and he had one of his daughters was blind. And, and his family, quite frankly, was destitute. There, there was no welfare system in England. There was no aid for these people. And he would say when his family would come and visit him and they would, especially when his daughter, his blind daughter would leave, he said it was like somebody pulling the muscle off his bone. What was so hard is that they told him, John, you can walk out of here anytime. All you have to do is just tell us you won't preach Jesus Christ. See, he had days where he felt so guilty that he wasn't taking care of his family. His wife encouraged him, you know, John, while you're there, for however long it is, God will take care of us. And the fact of the matter is, they were just living. They were literally living meal to meal. She said, John, you got all this time on your hands. You got to write. You got to write. So he did. Did he know what the brutal facts were in his life? Yeah. What sustained him? The fact that there was a God who would give him what he needed and it would meet the needs of his family. Did they have any extra? Never had extra. They just had what they needed for that moment. Uh, today, 300 years later, people still read. His book, Pilgrim's Progress, next to the Bible, is the second most read book in the history of the world. Isn't that interesting? See? Now, you know what the brutal facts were. But he was a man who lived wisely and he lived well in the middle of his difficult circumstances. In fact, oh, I had a thing. What was my deal here? Catch this. Today, in the center of Bedford, England, there stands a statue of John Bunyan carrying a tinker's burden, or pack, upon his back and a Bible in his hand. It marks the place where that great Puritan spent the long years of his imprisonment for the offense of preaching without the permission of the state. Near the foot of the statue is a little bronze plaque. On it are engraved the words of the prosecutor, the Lord Judge Magistrate of Bedford, spoken when he sentenced John Bunyan in 1673. And Bunyan, by the way, was in there for 12 years. This is what's chiseled into the statue of John Bunyan. The judge said, at last we are done with this tinker and his cause. Nevermore will he plague us. For his name, locked away as surely as he, shall be forgotten as surely as he. Done are we and all eternity with him. Yeah, what was his name? It was like Voltaire. You know, Voltaire was the one who said, in a hundred years, the Bible will be extinct. And a hundred years later, the Bible Society headquarters was in that very home. Is that not amazing? I got a couple more for you. You guys still there? All right. He showed wisdom in his dependence, not independence. He showed wisdom in his dependence. Now, now where do we get that? 
Um, I, I think you get that from the fact that verse 12 tells us this. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. There was a great dependence on God. Um, he, uh, did he have a team? Yeah. Was he depending on his team? No. Was he depending on his network? Was he depending? Now, did he utilize his team? I'm sure he did. But was his dependence on them? No. Did he have letters from the king? Did he have political clout? Yes. Look at verse 16. The officials didn't know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Uh, this guy's dependence was on God. That's where his wisdom came from. He began with God. Here's a principle for you. A leader meets with God in private before he meets people in public. Let me say that again. A leader meets with God in private. See a wall with one of your kids. Uh, life gets broken and we don't know how to fix it. And, and we start looking at it and it's overwhelming. And we don't know where to begin. And, and there's, my gosh, I, I, I mean, we're just in over our heads. So, so see, a lot of times we tend to run to a counselor or, or we tend to, you know, we need a psychologist or, and nothing wrong with any of that if they're biblical. If they're not biblical, there's everything wrong with it. You see, now if you've got a medical condition, get the best doctor you can find. Um, but what I'm saying to you is you don't bypass God. Our dependence starts there. It's uh, when, when you can't sleep at night because you don't know what to do, slip out of the bed and go into the den and get on your knees before God and tell him you don't know what you're doing. And I need your direction and I need your help, Lord. I'm clueless here. I need you to work for me. I, I, need, you, I need a breakthrough from you, Lord. You see? Uh, where, where did Nehemiah get his stuff? Where did he get his confidence? Where, is it because he said he was a gifted guy? Because... But uh, the best leaders are guys that are, that are broken. The best leaders are guys that know their weaknesses. The best leaders are guys that know they don't have what it takes. Um, they, they know how fragile they are. They know how uh, limited they are. I need the God of creation. I need the God who runs the universe. God, I need you to help me. And that I can even talk to you is amazing. That I have access to you by the blood of Jesus. That I can come right into the Holy of Holies and talk to you. And you're listening to me right now. That's unbelievable. In Israel, the high priest could only go in one day out of the year into the Holy of Holies. One guy, one day a year. We can go anytime, anytime we can go into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Christ. That's unbelievable. So why not go and tell him? You're driving down your car. No, you're driving in your car down the road. But you're so screwed up, you don't know what you're doing. So what do you do? Turn off Rush for 10 minutes and say, Lord, you know what? I'm not saying turn off all the radio all the time. I'm just saying, but when you're, you know, you ever think, you know, I just, just turn it off. Say, Lord, you know what? Gosh, my only hope is you. I can't do this, Lord. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. <clears throat> and Lord, I'm clueless here. 
And if you don't come through for me, I'm finished. I, I, I mean, Lord, you know I'm in over my head. See, there's a private walk with God. I'm not saying you pray four hours a day or go to a monastery. I'm just saying you walk with him. I'm just saying you drive with God. I'm just saying you jog with God. He's always there with you. See, that's practicing the presence of God. I got another one here. How many is this? 14? I don't know. Number five. All right, number five. Here we go. He showed wisdom in his influence. He showed wisdom in his influence. Now, what am I talking about here? All right, you get to verse 17. He hasn't said a word to anybody. Now, but see, he's done his reconnaissance. He's checked out everything. He's, see, for three days, he's checking it out. He's quiet. He's still. He's, 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 he's formulating a plan. As he's praying, and this guy was a praying guy. We know that from the first chapter. As he's praying, he's planning. He's thinking about these gates and how we do this. And you know, how can we, how can we, okay. And so he's pondering. He's kicking it around. And then finally, he pulls them together. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to influence them, and he's going to motivate them. But note what he does. Verse 17, I said to them, you see the bad situation we're in. He confronts them with the brutal facts. He's not Robert Schulering these guys. You know what I'm talking about? This isn't, this isn't turn your, it's not nonsense is what I'm talking about. You know, it's not putting Frank Sinatra on there and talking about doing it my way. He's talking about, hey, listen, we got a problem here. We're not doing this positive thinking nonsense. We got a problem, but we got a God. All right, that's where we are, guys. We got a problem. These walls are busted down, and they've been busted down. And we're a laughing stock. And this is the God of the universe. This is his temple. Anyway, you see the bad situation we're in. That Jerusalem is desolated, and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And then I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me. And about the king's words, which he had spoken to me. He starts telling the story. He starts telling them how he got there. He starts telling them about the day that God put it in his heart. And then he starts telling about the day that he went into the king. And if the king, if he looked sad in the king's presence and the king wasn't on board, he could have cost him his life. But God gave him favor with the king. And unbelievably, the king gives him these letters. And the king gives him this permission from the forest to bring in the timbers. And the king is basically, guys, you won't believe this, the king, by the grace of God, has given us everything we need to do this job. Because the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of God. He turns it whatever way he wishes. And see, what he's doing is, He's appealing to these guys. He's letting them in on what God, is, what God wants to do. And then note what happens in verse 18. Then they said, let us arise and build. Now, I want to tell you something. <clears throat> That's what they said. That's not how they said it. He's telling them all this stuff. Then they said, then they said, they hear the story and they go, they say, let us arise and build. That's not what they said. He told them the story. He's telling them we got timber. We got this God's work. You know what these guys did? These guys all of a sudden they went, ah! They went, all right. Let us arise and build. That's what they did. These guys got pumped. They, you know what this guy did? I'll tell you what I think he did. I think he did exactly what John Eldridge talks about in the book Wild at Heart. You know this book. It's a great book. John's done a great service to the Christian community in writing the book Wild at Heart. Um, I almost brought it with me, and then I didn't, because I would have read too much. If you haven't read it, Chuck read it. 
Chuck's written the foreword to that book. Basically, you know what John's saying? John's saying is, in the United States, all we're trying to do is raise men who are nice guys. That's the goal in America, is to make you into a nice guy. You're supposed to be a nice guy at work. You're supposed to be a nice guy at the club. See, we, what we want are nice guys. God's not looking for nice guys. God's looking for men. And you know what we do in the church? We want nice guys in the church. We had two little calves born at our place in the fall. And uh, I came home one day, and uh, the vet was there, and I saw two testicles hanging on the fence. And they weren't mine. <laughs> so I immediately thanked God. But there was this little calf standing there who was cross-eyed, and he wasn't quite sure what had happened. But, you know, he'd just been cut. He'd just been neutered. Now, we had different rituals in Christianity. We baptize. Um, and I'll tell you what else we do. We, we castrate men in evangelical Christianity. Does that surprise you? Well, it's true. I think it's very true. We just want guys to be nice. If you don't smoke and you don't drink and you don't cuss, man, what else could you want? Um, you know, there's a lot more to it than that. God loves to take men. He loves to turn them into leaders. What John says, what John says, he has just three little shots in his book. This would, listen to this. He says, he, and, he, and I think he's dead on. Because, see, there's no adventure anymore. We're, we're all, see, what, what's happened is the church, we feminize men. And we make Jesus look feminized. You guys have heard me say this before, you know. The pictures that we have painted of Jesus are an absolute crock. When I was a little boy, and I say, and I know you guys, some of you guys have heard this before. So, but bear with me, because it just paints the picture. When I was a little boy, my mom had these women magazines, and on the back were these pictures. They always had these advertisements for Breck shampoo, and they had these Breck girls, and there were these portraits. It was a painting of a real pretty girl. And uh, a portrait, and you know, it was a gorgeous girl. Sometimes it was a blonde, sometimes a redhead, some, anyway. Flawless complexion, beautiful, lustrous, shiny hair. Well, I'm probably six or seven. I go with my mom. We go to a Christian bookstore. And I walk in there, and there up on the wall is this picture of Jesus. You've seen it. And he's kneeling by the rock, and he's got this flawless robe on that just came back from the dry cleaners. There's no dirt on it, and there's no dirt under his fingernails, and his hands are absolutely perfectly soft. And his complexion is flawless. And his hair was lustrous and shiny, just like those red girls. That's how most of us, that, that's, how, that's how the evangelical church tends to view Jesus. And it's how we want his men to be. No dirt under the fingernails, no calluses on the hands, soft complexions. But do you recall when Jesus walked into the temple? And he was upset. But, oh, he wasn't nice. He was upset. But see, he should have been nice because that's godly. Well, he was God, and he wasn't nice. Because it wasn't the place to be nice. It was the time to confront. And sometimes godly men have to confront. You see? It was time to confront. So he started confronting these guys and started turning tables over and pulling out a whip. And they started looking for the exit signs. And as they were running for the exit signs, they didn't say, look at his hair. Did they? 
Eldridge says this. He says, every man, every man that God created needs three things. Number one, he needs a battle to fight. You know what? You were created to be a warrior. You weren't created to make sales calls all day. Now you make them because that's your job. But you know what? You got a family, don't you? Yeah. You want that marriage to work? You're going to have to be a warrior. You're going to have to go to war. What are you going to do when your kids hit 14, 15, 16? And, uh, and they're at a party with Christian kids from a Christian school. And they start smoking dope. You think that doesn't happen at Christian schools? You need to get in the real world. What are you going to do? You better go to war. See, because that's your real job. Because, see, we're in spiritual battle. Every man needs a battle. Every man needs a battle to fight. Every man needs, number two, an adventure to live. <coughs> and see, what happens is we get feminized and we don't want the adventure. We, you know what we want? We're just like our wives. We want security. You don't, let me tell you something. Security is overrated. Number one, there is no security. Now, you want to be a good provider and all that. But you know what? Security can't be your goal in life. Your goal in life has got to be being a man of God. And let me tell you something. You're going to be a man of God. God is going to custom design phases into your life where you're going to be insecure because there's nothing to trust in except him. That's what you call an adventure. Because you don't know how the heck you're going to make it. You got cancer, and you don't know if you're going to make it or not. You know what that is? That's an adventure. That's just like the perfect storm. Those guys are out on that storm. They didn't know if they were going to make it or not. You see? And, and, and a lot of them didn't make it. But see, the great thing about God is if, if cancer takes your life, you just go into his presence. You see? Because God's got all the details wired, you see. But, but see, we, we've gotten soft and we've gotten afraid and we don't want any adventure. And when adventure comes, it just scares us to death. But see, there's nothing, as, as Churchill said, there's nothing more exhilarating than being shot at without result. <laughs> right? Now that's adventure. And, and then John says, thirdly, we need a beauty to rescue. He said, where did he get this? I think he got it right out of the scriptures. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Well, you know what? That's rescuing, that's rescuing a beauty. You see? You, you know what I think Nehemiah did with these guys? I think, quite frankly, I think he motivated. How did he influence them? I think he took these three things. Didn't use them word for word. I, took, I think he took the concepts. There's a battle to fight. And you know what? They had a literal battle to fight because we're going to see here in a few weeks. They literally, because this Sambalat and Tobiah, they weren't missing around. They didn't want that. So they strapped on swords. And they went to work. They worked with swords and with guys on guard. This was a life and death deal. They, they had a battle to fight. When you're fighting a battle like that, that's an adventure. You see? You're unemployed, that's an adventure. Uh, God, how are you going to get me through this? Gosh. You see? But you know how many great things happen when God interrupts our plans? You know how many great things happen when our security is taken away from us? And then you start getting creative and say, you know, Lord, what if I did this? And maybe I could do this. And then 10 years down the road, it happened. And if you had been in that secure situation, that never would have happened. We're sitting here in this church. Let me tell you something. Guys that are 65 years old don't start churches. Do they? You know anybody that's 65 years old who's normal, who starts a church? I don't. They're getting ready to go down to Baptist land and, or whatever their deal is and retire. 
But you don't go, or, or evangelical freeland, or whatever the heck you do. I don't know what you call it. Or, or, you know, that's crazy. Well, thank God, thank God that Chuck was crazy enough to say, okay, Lord, here we go. And then what do you do? You got, you got a few guys. And some are sitting right here. Because he can't do it alone. You see? And then, you know, you confront the brutal realities. And you say, well, what are we going to do? And how are we going to do it? And then, and then here we are down the road. But what if Chuck has, oh, I'm 65. This is crazy. I can't do this. Because he could be out just running around speaking, writing books, huh? But see, he, he didn't shut. It was an adventure. Did he know how it was going to work out? He didn't know how it was going to work out. But he went for it. It's called faith. There's a beauty to rescue. Some of you guys, your wives, you need to rescue them from themselves. You know what I mean by that? Some of you guys have wives that are so strong, you're letting them run your family. And you become afraid. And you become passive. And they're sweet gals. They love the Lord. But you've let them take a place that you're supposed to be in. And you know who you are. That's what's happened. And if it's happened, it's okay. You, need, you just need to go rescue her from herself. And you need to love her enough to not let her do that. Because, see, your kids don't need to see that. And your grandkids don't. You need to lead your family. Love it. You'd love her. You'd die for her. You'd do anything. You're not a hard guy. You know what I'm talking about. But you're supposed to lead. And you lead. You saw Braveheart? The deal about Braveheart, the guy that struck me the most was Robert the Bruce, the younger. Because he was, he was enamored with William Wallace. You know, by the way, as in all movies, William Wallace was not an immoral guy. William Wallace was a believer. He had a chaplain that traveled with him full time. He loved Christ. Uh, in, in the movie, the bad guy was Edward the Longshanks. And you remember Robert the Bruce, the younger. Well, his father had leprosy. And uh, the younger Robert the Bruce was taken with William Wallace in his leadership. And he told his father, he said, I want to be like him. But his father, his father said, you know what, he looks impressive, but the noble man compromises because his father had sold out to England and to Edward the Longshanks. And, and what happened, they went into battle. And uh, so William Wallace and his men were going up against the army of England. And uh, one of the knights uh, blindsided William Wallace. And Wallace was down on the ground, looked like he was, gonna, he was finished, and this knight went to him, threw off his helmet, and uh, William Wallace turned, and he was just playing possum, and grabbed this guy, and it was Robert the Bruce, who had gone to the other side, the younger. His father had deceived him, and he had gone to the wrong side. And then William, William Wallace was, was betrayed by him. Um, he went back to his father after he had been a Judas to William Wallace. And here's the dialogue right out of the movie. He returns to his father, his father, whose face is rotting because of leprosy. His father says, I'm the one whose face is rotting, but that your face looks graver than mine. The young Robert replied in anguish, I have nothing. 
men fight for me because if they don't, I'll throw them off my land and I'll starve their wives and kids or children. Those men who bled the ground red at Falkirk, they fought for William Wallace. And he fights for something that I've never had. And I took it from him when I betrayed him. And I saw it in his face on the battlefield, and, and, it's, and it's tearing me apart. His father then says, well, all men betray, all lose heart. The son said, I don't want to lose heart. I, I want to believe as he does. I never want to be on the wrong side again. And then that young man got on the, wrong, got on the right side. See, the fact of the matter is, if you've been on the wrong side, you need to get off the wrong side. You don't want to be on the wrong side again in any of these areas. If you've been passive, you need to stop being passive. Start following Christ. Don't be a tyrant. Just follow Jesus and love your wife and love your kids. Don't let her discipline. You discipline. You see? Don't let her set the moral parameters in the family. You say what you're going to watch, not her. We're going to watch this. We're not going to watch this. That's your job. You're the spiritual leader. You've been on the wrong side. You don't ever want to be on the wrong side again. See, that's our job. That, that's the adventure. Do you know how it's going to turn out? No, I don't either. But it's sure better than being a wuss liberal. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? And, and understand what I mean. Oh, we can't go to war. We, we need more peacekeepers. We need, we, we can't, we need these, uh, well, you know, what do you think he's doing in there? Making M&Ms? <laughs> huh? I mean, you know, it's amazing to me, these guys. Well, these guys, th these guys, you know what they are? They're not men. Well, 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 we might take casualties. Oh, we will take casualties. We might have guys killed. We will have guys killed. You don't know anything about that. Because Jesus said, no greater love is this than a man lay down his life for his friend or his country. You see? Well, some guy might lose his arm. Well, he might, but he'll be more of a man with one arm than you ever were with two because you don't have the guts to do what's right. So you say you're for women, but you sleep with women and abuse women and use women, and then those women get pregnant, and you want to abort those children because you're not a real man. You know what? We need some men. We need some men who love God, who love Christ, who aren't feminized, who aren't tyrants, that live well and live wisely. I kind of got charged up there. <laughs> Here's what we're going to do. This is our new tradition here. We're not going to castrate you. <laughs> yeah, I just thought I'd tell you. So you're safe here. But we are going to pray. That really wasn't a good segue, was it? That really didn't fit. We're going to pray because we need to pray. And what we're going to do, if you're a guest, we're glad you're here. We don't want you to feel pressure. We like to pick up just two or three guys, four guys in a group. Someone's got something on their heart. Uh, just say, I got a need, guys. Could you pray for me? And uh, there's no pressure for you to pray or to just, if you want to pass, just say you pass. We want you to feel comfortable here. Uh, let's do that. Let's take a few minutes and pray. And you know what? When you're done, you'll leave. You'll be dismissed. Is that fair? All right. God bless you guys.